Proverbs chapter 1. Open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. As you know, along with a few of the staff, we've been team teaching this book. And it's interesting as we've kind of sliced up the preaching sections, how easy and difficult it is. And what I mean by easy is there's some very distinct paragraphs that just pop out of the pages of Proverbs from the pen of Solomon, but there's also a lot of dovetailing and overlap. And this is one of those dovetails and overlaps that goes back and picks up part of what Aaron instructed us last week on really the first and the lasting lesson of a parent's influence. So we're going to be looking specifically at verses 10 through 19, but I want to go back and get a running start with what Aaron uh, taught on last time in verse 8. Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath around your head and, and ornaments around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil. And they hurry, they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of the bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. So they ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. The phrase peer pressure is one that everyone knows something about. We grew up hearing about it. You grew up probably being preached about peer pressure. What is peer pressure? Well, peer pressure refers to the influence exerted by a peer group or other people in your, in your circle of influence that encourage a person to change their attitudes, values, or behavior in order to conform to the group. It's a group of people who exert influence to try to get you to change to adopt what they think is valuable. I'll never forget seeing peer pressure in its most graphic sense played out for me when I was a freshman in college. It was Psychology 101 at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. My instructor provided an unforgettable illustration of what peer pressure was, and I was just glad that I wasn't the object of the illustration. Here's what happened. At the beginning of class, 
right at the beginning. And there was this, this was a, a theater with 400 people in it. Big, giant freshman class. She made an observation that we were all aware of. In every class, there were people who came in late. And it happens today. It happens in church. There's always someone who comes in late. So she said to listen to what she was about to tell us and then watch who came in late and watch where they sat. Here's what she did. She asked all of us to raise our hands. This was before the late people came in. She said, here's the question. I'm going to ask you a very simple question right now, and I want you to answer. How many of you are aware that this morning the United States declared war on Russia? Now, this was pre-perestroika, so just work with me here. How many of you know that the United States this morning declared war on Russia? And I looked around, she looked around. No one raised their hand because the United States had not declared war on Russia. You know where this is going, don't you? So then she told us, she would ask the questions a few minutes later, except she asked all of us who were in the class at that point, when she asked that question, to raise our hands, that we knew that the United States had attacked Russia. Sure enough, five or six students trickled in, and all of us were watching where they sat. Girl right over there, I remember she was right there. On cue... The teacher said, students, how many of you are aware that this morning the United States of America declared war on Russia? Everyone's hands went up, and so did all six of those latecomers. <laughs> yeah. Then she went on to talk about peer pressure. She actually very graciously talked about how she was involved with the same experiment. She had done the same thing. She tried to protect the dignity of these people who were quite embarrassed. But does the pressure of others ever influence yours? That's an easy, fun illustration. Do you ever find yourself doing or thinking something just because someone else is? Now let's extend the peer pressure, do you ever find yourself doing or thinking things that are not God's values because others are doing the same? Listen, not all peer pressure is bad. In a real sense, church is peer pressure. It's good peer pressure. It's the, it's the exerting of influence of a group of people on others. That's a great thing in the spirit of God and under the authority of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a powerful, encouraging, godly peer pressure and influence that I trust moves us along. I love, I love what Adam and Tim and Abe and the others in the youth ministry are doing to, to build a peer pressure where it's cool and best to follow Jesus. And in this ministry, these ministries that, that these men are leading, I am, I am so encouraged to say that if you're not trying to follow Christ, you're on the out, not the in. There's this positive side of peer pressure. There's also the negative side. And the negative side is what Solomon has in mind in the verses before us. The logic and the wisdom of the Spirit of God in this opening chapter is remarkable. 
after pointing to wisdom as the highest goal, we've heard it preached on week after week. And can I say something also about what you're going to hear in the coming months as we study Proverbs? You will likely hear someone say something, Adam or Myrl or Aaron or me, and you'll think, that's what so-and-so said last time. And you'll be right, because that's what Solomon said in the previous paragraph. Solomon understands what every parent understands. Don't you wish you could teach one lesson one time? It would be taught, understood, learned, and you'd never have to say it again. I certainly have. I certainly do. Solomon takes multiple angles at the same issue, and peer pressure is one that he will cycle back to as well. So if you hear us being a little bit repetitive and a little bit cyclical, you're right, and so is Solomon. So after pointing to wisdom as the highest goal with the greatest and best results, Solomon starts with God in verse 7. He addresses the priority of parents in verses 8 and 9, and next is the subject of others in dealing with how others' influence could exert undue and unwelcome influence on the godly. Specifically, Solomon is wanting to protect young Rehoboam from the bad influences of wicked men. If you were going to write a Christian parenting manual, the consecutive logic of King Solomon could not be improved upon. Remember, he's talking to young Rehoboam. He's trying to protect Rehoboam from the steps that he misstepped in. And certainly, he wants him to avoid the pressure of peers. We don't have the time to look at this now, but if you'll go to 1 Kings chapter 11 sometime and read... Rehoboam succumbed to the pressure around him. And because of that, the kingdom ended up being divided. Every parent fears the wrongful influence of ungodly people on our children. Every pastor fears the ungodly influence of ungodly people on our sheep. And there are many ungodly influences. Now, before we look at the negative peer pressure, ask yourself this question. I asked the young people to come back tonight. I'm so glad to see our singles and our, our uh, uh, high schoolers up front. And let me just ask you, <laughs> is it within the realm of possibility that now or in the past you have ever played the role of the wrongful and bad influence and peer pressure on someone else. Entertainment choices, values choices, language choices, uses of liberty. Have you ever exerted influence in a way that Solomon would have looked at you and told Rehoboam, be careful of that guy or that girl? It's an important question we have to ask. Jesus said in Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, these little ones who believe, rather, to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he had been cast into the sea. Jesus understood what could happen with wrongful peer pressure and wrongful influence towards stumbling. What is your influence 
And by whom are you influenced? We need to look at both sides of that coin. What is your influence and by whom are you influenced? I wish I could sit down with all of you. We could just have a little private meeting in the back corner just for three or four minutes before you left and I could hear you tell me or you could tell your friends, these are the greatest influences in my life. These are the people who exert the most influence on me and you listen to them. And then we could begin dissecting the people who are providing you influence. Not only that, it doesn't always have to be someone you know. You know, we have a, a world full of celebrities. Daniel Bornstein, back in 1963, wrote, celebrities are famous for being famous. Back then in 1963, he was observing the shift between true heroes and people attaching value and purpose and following to heroes and celebrities who are, he was talking about actors, really good pretenders. You do know that's what an actor is, right? An actor is someone who can pretend really well. Isn't that odd when you boil it down to that? They don't give an Academy Award out and say, and for the best person to pretend he was so-and-so, that would be weird. He talked about the fact that heroes, and this was 1963, heroes used to be astronauts. Sir Edmund Hillary who climbed Everest. People who did great things with great skill and great virtue. And he warned in 1963 of the undue influence of people who are famous for just being famous. Have we not seen that come to roost in our generation? Well, let's take a look at peer pressure from Solomon's perspective. And we're gonna break it down looking at the anatomy of peer pressure. I'm gonna show you two dangers of peer pressure critical to understand. If you misunderstand these, if you don't see these, you're gonna fall into the wrongful influence of someone. Two dangers of peer pressure critical to understand. The first is in verses 10 to 14, the seductions of peer pressure. The seductions of peer pressure. We're going to break this down even further. First of all, let's look at tempting invitations. In verse 10, tempting invitations. Solomon says, my son, Rehoboam, if sinners entice you, do not consent. We could actually stop right there tonight. That's the be-all, end-all principle. First of all, sinners uh, is used in the book of Proverbs as people distinguished from godly people unbelievers is what's in mind. If unbelievers, if sinners, if people who, whose values are ungodly, who belong to Satan and this world, who are corrupted by the influence of this, this world generation, this, this planet that wants to pull them with a gravitational sinful tractor beam into what they're doing. If these sinners tempt you or entice you, world is tempting the world is enticing. I remember dropping my son off at school one day in California. 
After I dropped him off, he was walking in the class, and I saw three girls walking as well into the school. And what they were wearing could have barely been called a bathing suit. And my heart sank. And I became fearful and protective. Maybe I should go get him and not ever let him go to that school again. Is that the problem? Can you take away all temptations and everything that entices the human heart? You can't. It's called heaven. You can't. If sinners entice you, and then this strong admonition, do not go that way, do not honor them, do not obey them, do not agree with them, do not consent. Listen, students, let me talk specifically to you. You are in a world, I don't care if you're homeschool, private school, public school, parochial school, um, dental school, I don't care what you're in. You are going to be surrounded by people who want you to participate in what they participate for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's to alleviate their guilt. Sometimes it's just plain old they want you to sin with them. Psalmist says, resist. Don't consent. We're going to be Tempted until we die. Now, this isn't the pro or private, uh, the pro or con homeschool, private school, public school, but remember this. Parents, remember this. The temptation and enticements of the world are not out there. They're in here. They're not out in the world. They're in the heart. You can lock a student up. You can lock a young person up for the rest of their life in a white room and they will still struggle with every known sin in the heart. You know why? It's in the heart. Sinners enticing people is just exciting something, titillating something in the heart that's already there. And that doesn't go away when you grow up, does it? Doesn't go away when you're a mom committed to being a worker at home and just milling around the neighborhood and bed, bath, and beyond. It doesn't go away when you're a, a father who's working at an office. It, it never, ever, ever goes away, which is all the more reason why you need to have a strategy for understanding and dealing with with temptation and with dealing with peer pressure as young as you begin, can begin to think about it. Secondly, notice malicious propositions. Verse 11. He gets personal, Solomon does. If they, these are the sinners, these are the unbelievers, these are the tempters, the enticers. If they say, come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. Now, the, Solomon is using the extreme example to make the point. He's talking about people ambushing people to either steal, as we'll see in a minute, or possibly murder, shed blood, 
It's the voice of temptation is the principle. Notice it's plural. This is a group of sinners. They've already joined together. They've already banded together. They already know each other. They've already succumbed to one another's peer pressure. And now they're targeting you. Solomon goes again to the extreme. The important thing to notice here is the pure meanness and disregard for those hurt by this peer pressure. The point of this could be don't go be murderous. Certainly a temptation in Solomon's day. It's a temptation in ours too. We live in a, in a, in a pretty safe environment. But imagine preaching this down in East L.A. or in Honduras or in Haiti where I know I have friends who are ministering who are preaching this to gang members and potential gang members who are literally being enticed by others to go and commit murder. Let's not sanitize this and think, oh, this is just principle. And he doesn't really mean what he says. You know what he does? And it absolutely applies in some contexts. But the principle that pops out is, that applies to us are these malicious propositions. People wanting to be malicious and are not happy being malicious with others until you're malicious to others with them. That's verses 11 and 12. In verses 13 and 14, we find another component of the seduction of peer pressure. Selfish motivation. This is so clear. Verse 13. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. This is talking about ambushing someone to rob them. We will fill our houses. Spoil means what we've stolen. The trophies of our conquest. Here's the admonition from these sinners. Throw in your cause. Throw in your lot. Throw in your purpose with us. We shall all have one purse. This is enticing others to participate in something in peer pressure and participate in their sin and the motivation is if you do this you'll have personal gain selfish gain this can be an advanced as a plot to break in someone's home and steal this can be involvement in a Ponzi scheme that you're willful in and listen students this is also addressing joining others who are looking at a key to an exam that will allow all of you to cheat. Corporate cheating on exams is one of the, the worst threats to secondary and, and college age education today. I wonder, have you ever been... You've been offered an opportunity to cheat. Oh, it might not just be the, the students in, in school. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone who tells you the way you can get around paying taxes that's illegal or property taxes or around building codes. Do you succumb to peer pressure because others are enticing you to do so for personal gain. 
The idea here is simple. It's usually common and shared gain that makes one yield to peer pressure. There's something in it for you. Now, what you have to ask is what's in it for them? Why would they want to get you to help them and it would diffuse their, their gain? Well, very simple. Alleviation of conscience, also spreading of guilt. People want us to participate with them in, in sin for a variety of reasons, usually so they will feel better about their participation in the sin, so they can spread culpability if they're, if they're caught. This happened to me in, in high school. There was a, uh, uh, a civics exam, and I found out late, late to the game, I came in late to class that day, that a bunch of people had found the exam key Teacher had left it, student had stolen it, passed it around, people were using it. I, I hope I would have said no, but I found out about it too late. But I watched this thing unfold and heard people when, when the teacher confronted the class. And it was very clear that those who had the key wanted as many people as they could to cheat with them so they wouldn't be in as much trouble. It's easier if you're all in trouble than if just you are in trouble. Now, why does a person fall into this peer pressure? Usually, it's so that you can gain admiration or respect. It's fear of man. You don't want to be disliked, so you participate. You want to be liked, so you participate. Others, like we're seeing here, so you can gain the benefit of their sinful ideas. Think about cheating on that test. You get the better grade if you join in. Exodus 23, verse 2. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. How clear is that? Don't follow the masses in doing evil. Moses understood something there. That the masses are typically going headlong as a group the wrong direction. And the illustration of the, the fish swimming upstream or the person going against the crowd is a good one. The masses follow in doing evil. Exodus 23 verse 2 is something that should be etched on your mind. So the first danger of peer pressure critical to understand is the seduction of peer pressure. It's a seducing influence. Second part is equally as important, and that's to understand the consequences of peer pressure. The consequences of peer pressure. What we're going to learn in the book of Proverbs, Solomon has such a clear methodology. He often takes us to look at the consequences, sees what that's like, and brings us back and says, don't go there. He does this over and over as we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes. He escorts us to our own coffin and says, look at where you're going to be someday. Live like you will have wished you had lived when you're lying here. The consequences of peer pressure. Let's break this down. First of all, sinful friendships. That's the first consequence. Sinful friendships. Verse 15. Oh, my son. You just hear him bleeding on Rehoboam. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet far from their path. We've studied over and over in the Bible that the word walk in the Old Testament and New Testament describes your lifestyle, your choices, your values, your decisions. 
how you live. Do not live, do not walk in the way with these unbelievers, with these sinners. Keep your feet from the way they go, from their path. You know, we can't look at this text without flipping back over to Psalm 1. Doesn't that just, this just scream Psalm 1 when you read that? Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Same exact phrase. Don't walk with them in their path. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. What a promise against the prospering of enjoying sinful influence and peer pressure. And remember... Changes in verse 4. The wicked, they're not like that. They're not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the seat of the, in the assembling of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word way is path. He knows the path of the righteous. But the path or the way of the wicked will perish. That's exactly what Solomon has in mind here. He would have learned this from his father, David. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from the way they walk, from their path. Listen, if you are going to resist peer pressure, you have to be willing to pay a price. You have to be willing to be ostracized. You have to be willing to be ridiculed. You have to be willing to be left out. You have to be willing to be alone. Remember Daniel? I had in my notes here to read Daniel chapter 1, but we won't do that. Let me just summarize it for you. Daniel is in a foreign land, probably as a 13 or 14-year-old, a junior hire. King is providing him as a young man training for service with all the other nobles. He was in the first group in 586 to be transported back to Babylonia. He was with the the all-stars, taken from his family, taken from his parents, with these other guys, the same age, the brightest of Israel, and they were trying to fatten him up, feed him well, get him in shape mentally and Physically, and he was offered the best of the king's food. Just a little footnote. You know what the primary meat source in ancient Iraq and Babylon was? Pork. Pigs. Still is to this day. You know what Leviticus 11 said about eating pigs? To young Jewish men, real simple, don't. What Daniel was offered was a violation of Leviticus chapter 11. You know what he said? I won't eat what's forbidden by the law. He was a junior hire. You know the story. He's basically given seeds and grain 
And the text, the Hebrew is funny. It says, and he got really fat. He prospered. Wasn't, wouldn't that have been a great day to live in where being fat is a sign that God's blessing you? That's a, what a great day to think about. Then in chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're told to bow down with all of their peers to the great image of Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, no, death first. They were junior hires too. Peer pressure is avoidable. And the Bible gives us wonderful examples of those who did, paid the price, but ended up being prospered by the Lord. Don't walk in the way with them. Keep your feet far from their path. Listen, be willing to pay the price for staying away from what they're doing, what they're thinking, and where they're going. Another consequence is in verse 16, sinful pursuits. For their feet, he talks about the end game here, their feet run to evil. They hurry, they hasten to shed blood. This could literally mean that they're trying to shed blood. Like we said, that may not apply to some of our our temptations here. It might downtown, it might in gang-infested situations. It certainly does in other countries. But the principle is that they are getting in trouble and pursuing sin And that becomes the actual goal to run towards. But I I remember guys I went to school with who seemed to love to get in trouble. And they loved to bring people along with them to get in trouble as well. The text is so clear. They run. They hurry. They can't wait to shed blood, to run to evil. Remember Psalm 1, the difference between the two paths. Another consequence is in verses 17 and 18, sinful ambushes. Sinful ambushes. Now, this has a lot of application. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you're reading along and you go, Huh? What does that mean? In other words, this is what he's saying. The bird, let, let me tell you how they would catch birds. It was differently than, than we had with a, a 12 gauge or a, a 20 gauge and in a big field with, with a pheasants and quail. And uh, that, that's, that's the way we, we take care of things, at least in the Midwest. How do they catch birds? Like, have you ever thought about this? All of the birds needed for all of those sacrifices. How did they get those birds? They would set traps. They would put grain down with nets that would fall on top of the birds. They would sit grain. The birds would come down, begin eating the grain. They would trip the trap. They would catch the birds in the net. It was really simple. What he's saying here is the bird doesn't see any connection between the net and what's scattered on it with the grain or beneath it with the grain. He just sees it as food free for the taking. And in the process of taking advantage of what is appealing to his appetite, the bird gets trapped.
In the same way, the peer group cannot see the connection between their acts of robbery and treachery, chasing sin, and the ultimate fate and consequences that will entrap them. But, verse 18, back to this this murderous plot, they lie and wait for their own blood. He changes it. They ambush their own lives. Warren Wearsby writes this. You're free to take what you want from life, but eventually you'll have to pay for it. And the price you pay is higher than the value you gain. You end up sacrificing the permanent for the immediate, and that's a bad investment, he says. Ambushing themselves. You know, when you're blinded by lustful desires, when you're blinded by the, the desire to be accepted by a peer group, when you're blinded by the sin that's there and you think it's just for the gain and the get, you think you're clever. You're really setting a trap and an ambush for your own life. And then all of that climaxes in verse 19 with sinful outcomes. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of not the people who it takes life from, but its possessors, those who possess life. Well, some parents shelter their children from the world so much that our little ones can become naive and vulnerable. The whole plan in the book of Proverbs is to prepare parents to prepare children to learn how to resist the allurements of the world, not avoid them. As we say over and over and over, the problem with our children is not out there. The problem is in their hearts. Now, look, we should protect our our kids. We don't want to run them into every tempting situation just to give them experience. But don't try to protect any child from what's already embedded in their hearts. Now, I want to give you one brief example of this. Turn over to Psalm 73, please. If you know your Psalms very well, you know Psalm 73 is the account of Asaph. And this is Asaph looking at peer pressure. It's Asaph looking at the people around him, the people around him who are prospering because of evil doing and saying, what am I missing if I would only go with them? So just follow along and let's take a very quick ride with our friend Asaph. Verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, great principle. But as for me, my feet came close 
to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? Here it is. For I was envious of the arrogant. This arrogant is not the best translation of this word. It really means I was envious of those who were boasting and bragging about having a good time because of sin. I felt left out. I was envious. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Huh. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're getting along just fine, it seems. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. The people who seem to have learned to sin and work the system seem to learn how to prosper from working the system. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They're proud. They've set their mountain against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth. They have the best places to live and they're proud of it. Therefore, his people return to this place in waters of abundance and are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? What good is following God? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth, surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, why am I being such a goody two-shoes? Why am I being so moral? Why am I being so above reproach? Why am I staying away from what seems to me making everybody else happy? Asaph said, Maybe it's for nothing. Maybe it's in vain that I'm not going with the crowd. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's another way of saying I think about it all day and it wakes up. It's my first thought in the morning. What I am missing. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. There's a great principle there. When I got around godly people and godly instruction here in the sanctuary or the synagogue, us with people in the church, the youth ministry, being with, with other believers in the, in the body of Christ, perspective changes, peer pressure changes, association, fellowship change. Surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. Listen. Follow sinful lifestyle. Follow a sinful lifestyle and it will always end in destruction, in ruin. And even if a person dies looking like they won all their toys and trophies that they wanted to, what awaits for them after that 
is ultimate destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. With God, it's payday someday. He reflects, when my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. What a great picture, graphic picture. I was just like a dog. I wasn't thinking reasonable, spiritually, insightful, biblically intonated thoughts. Ah, love verse 23. Nevertheless, ah, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He looks at these sinners and the peer pressure they exerted. He considers the joy of their sin and what they were, they were experiencing. He sees their destruction and his conclusion is it's better to go without sinful enjoyment and to be with God than to head toward destruction with these others. You know this next passage, but hear it in context. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. In the context, he's saying, besides you, I don't desire to do the things that wicked sinners and unbelievers want to do to bring them pleasure. That's what's on the earth. I want to desire you. You're all I have. You're my stay. You're my security. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, what I own, my, 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 uh, my gain, my value forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, it's not the enjoyment of a bar. It's not the participation in a gang. It's not going with sinners, going the wrong direction against God's values. For me, the nearness of God, that's my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It ends in a very interesting place because he heard the sinners telling of their exploits and how wonderful those were, and he was jealous. But after he comes to the people of God and the place of God, has perspective changed, after he concludes that the nearness of God is his good and to have God and God alone is enough, then he says, you want to brag? You want to talk? You want to exert influence? I will tell of your works. So he starts by being envious of those who exert evil peer pressure on him. And he ends with saying, I will be the exerter of peer pressure. I will be the one who tells of the works of the Lord and that'll be my message. What an amazing turnaround. I don't care how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're a child or junior or senior high or a collegian. 
young married, young adult, old adult, all of us are surrounded by enticements to peer pressure. Your television is one. Your radio is another. The movie theater is yet another. The internet, probably the biggest one. What's enticing? In fact, maybe one of the worst sinful enticements of our generation is Facebook. But that's a whole sermon that I'm saving up for another time. Are you the receiver of negative, wicked, ungodly influence more than you are the exerter of telling the works of God and being a positive influence? Are you Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Joseph? Or are you Saul or Rehoboam who changed their leadership depending on which way the the wind of influence is blowing in their world. The only way, and this isn't a trite way to end the sermon, the only way to get your perspective right is to have our hearts aligned properly with, with Christ, with the Lord Jesus. To be a Christian, to be a son or a daughter of his, to have all of our values measured against him to let him have first place preeminence in everything, then we're able to withstand peer pressure and then we're able to exert it in a way that Asaph did in the end where he can tell all the works of God and turn it back against the world as an evangelistic force and not a weak-minded man or woman who's completely dependent on the way the wind is blowing with wicked people around us, with wicked influences around us. What kind of man or what kind of woman do you, do you want to be? You won't be that person tomorrow, next week, or next year unless we're doing things to become that person tonight. My suspicion is, if the Spirit of God is working on you like I've heard him work on me looking at this passage for the last few weeks. You know how you are influenced and where you are influencing. Do you have a good handle on, on which direction your sheet is blowing in the wind? Solomon's given us some great insight. Asaph, a great example. I trust that you can now have the tools to measure the power and the influence of peer pressure both received and exerted, and you know how to wield it for God.